Welcome to series three of Life Sci AI, the podcast series, hosted by Nick Mahoney, consultant at SciPro. I hope you enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of Life Sci AI, the podcast series. And this is series three, and we are halfway through almost at series three. And we're really uh, thankful to be joined by the CEO and founder, Alex Menis of Motilent. <laughs> was practicing that before because my northern twang doesn't quite get it right so I'll let him uh, have the proper pronunciation but I've known Alex for a long time so I'm really grateful to have him on he has some really interesting ideas around software as medical devices um, around IBS and Crohn's disease and he's going to share the story um, of himself and how he went from professor to founder to a successful CEO now so, so welcome Alex Greetings, Nick. Thank you so much for having me on today. And it's a pleasure. I've listened to the podcast now for quite a long time, stimulated mainly by recognizing a few of the names on there over the years. And I think it's now, um, you know, feels real good to be to be alongside some of these people. <laughs> awesome. And the, the name, because like I said I haven't got norm, I've got a northern twang. And sometimes I do, my pronunciation goes awfully wrong sometimes on this podcast. Um, so <laughs> just explain how it came about and why you chose uh yeah so picking a name for your company is the first great existential problem you face when founding a company and you know i work in digestive diseases and i did my phd in examining the gut with mri and just in case that wasn't niche enough already my specific thesis was around bowel wall motion and what you call motility or peristalsis of the gut so the first part of the company's name is based on motility um, and we're only going to go deep from here, everyone. I'm sorry in advance, but <laughs> entrography is the preparation of the bowel when you're examining it with imaging. So you drink this, this fluid, it distends the bowel so you can see it nicely. You can see if there's any disease and that's called entrography. So the company name is essentially a portmanteau of those two words, motility and entrography called Motiland. And the first time I explained that to an investor, they basically glazed over and gave up. I knew right then that I was going to have a very long, hard future in entrepreneurship. But yeah, eight <laughs> years later, I'm still here kind of pushing on. So I think that speaks more to my stubbornness than the greatness of the name. But there's one other slight um, concern around picking a company name. And that isn't that it's an offensive or rude word in another language. So off to Urban Dictionary to check it thoroughly to make sure it doesn't show up in you know, some other kind of terrible meaning. But it was all clear, especially at the time that I picked it. So here we are today. So it's Motilent. Motilent, yeah. Well, it's, it's an interesting and a topic actually we've never really covered um, on the podcast, naming your, your company, um, you know, so was there, was there any second, second choices or the front runners that you, that you had? Or Well, I, th I think it's interesting, I mean, especially now recording this podcast here in 2022, the company has moved a lot since I named it. Back then, we were looking at this very niche process within the GI tract. And now I look about what we're going to talk today on, which is the entirety of digestive disease, Crohn's disease management in general. And it's gone far beyond just motility or MRI or any one test. And it's a much more holistic business now. So I think as you ask this, I'm actively reconsidering, uh, reconsidering what the company is called. I'm not <laughs> going to change it just yet. I mean, it'll be a lot of documentation to update. But, um, you know, I think increasingly um, I'm beginning to reevaluate what that means to me, the company. And, and what we do going forward. But there's no need to kind of get worried, I think, just yet. And I'm still very happy with 
it and its various different pronunciations. <laughs> yeah. That gives me a free pass to go back to my Yorkshire twang for the rest of it. <laughs> so talk to us a little about yourself, um, because we were chatting just before we came online and um, you're only the second CEO that we've had and founder on the podcast series so far. Um, obviously, Tim Gwillems from, from Helix. So um, talk to us a little bit about, about your story, why um, you went from professor uh to um ceo of a really niche area of <laughs> medicine no so just to in full disclosure i didn't go from professor to CEO. Right. i think what happened was i did a phd um and during that phd i started what was essentially a consultancy and that's how we originated and essentially what i was doing was so um I mean, not complex because it was hard, complex because I really did a bad job of writing software and knowing how to run anything. But clinicians wanted to use the technology we had. And I, you know, it wasn't so much that I was I was doing anything magical here. I was just helping them with that work. And I ended up getting written to grants and various other projects. And that's where Motilent um, started originally. Now, it is really, really hard to get a faculty position these days in academia anywhere, I think, as if you if you follow social media you'll know that academics are leaving academia mm. in their droves due to the lack of job security and all the rest of it uh, and I was no different really I despite having lots of publications and all that kind of stuff for my PhD which I'm you know, really proud of it didn't really translate into a job or a job security so what I ended up doing was leaving um, academia I kept the company ticking along um, and I was furiously writing grants and to a degree, I was quite successful, and a lot of that money came straight back into the main institution that I've worked with, University College of London. And so despite leaving, um, I got made an honorary associate professor, so that's a little <laughs> bit less impressive, but nonetheless, um, for some of the contributions to the kind of the, the academic infrastructure there. So now I, I walk around with my CEO ship, and I, you know, I do enjoy and cling jealously to my honorary associate professorship at UCL, and I try to give back still to the, the, the various academics and stuff that are coming through that system. And I still have a lot of passion and interest in the academic piece of the work, and I think that, that comes through in our social media. It's very educational-focused. Yeah. And I think the more novel the area that you're doing, the more of an emphasis you have to place on education. Uh, and I think that kind of that teaching role, I think, will always be very strong in me, both as a CEO, but also in general, I think, in passing that information on is key so that's that's the kind of the backstory really around all of that so an accidental founder would you um, say or is it was it like each small step became logical and now you're on a podcast eight years on yeah i mean <laughs> there's definitely a bit of that and i think some people set out and want to become a ceo some have ceo ship, uh, ceo ship thrust upon them and i think for me <laughs> being a ceo is sort of you know not a big deal but being yeah. in charge of your own ship and kind of moving towards the objective that you have, which for me is literally changing the way we see the guard. I feel that having a small company and a team of great people is the perfect way to kind of get that pushed forward. In another era, I might have been working at a hospital or in a lab somewhere or within a yeah. big company. But right now, I think this is just right for the type of thing that we're doing. Okay. And where were you in 2014? What was the, the technology that was either call it a buzzword or, or such because you were obviously in the imaging space um, around the, around um, the gut but you were talking about software that you were programming and such so would have been a different world to the one we obviously live in now um, but how different was it back then 
Well, AI has been around forever, but I think machine learning and neural networks were beginning to kind of come into fashion. But there was a lot of more just basic, what you call math on images going on. So registration, which is the alignment of you know, features in image space, was a very popular. Segmentation was a very established field already, which is where you'd, you'd find mathematical methods to extract some structure. And if I'm perfectly honest, I think a lot of good companies still use these techniques because yep. they're very easy to verify and validate. They're quite sophisticated to develop. Um, and I think this move towards you know, CNNs and TensorFlow has in some ways degraded some of the science that went on back in the day. All that science is now wrapped up into a black box. Yeah. But back in 2014 and before when I was, I was working on these areas, um, it, was, it was incredible just how much had been done with you know, what you call more simple kind of mathematical methods to look at images. And the field was very, very sophisticated. And I think the real precursor to AI was um, texture analysis, which you know, really took off around then where you were looking at the histogram of pixels and looking for signal that you couldn't really see with the naked eye, but would show up in histogram analysis. And that was really getting quite popular. And around that time, I joined the, the board of a AIM listed company to provide some scientific advice. And I think that, that that company called Feedback PLC, which has now been, you know, it turned into something that's looking rather successful, um, a bit outside of the image analysis space. Um, they were really doing what I think went on to become AI. But of mm. course, the AI swell didn't really happen till 2018, 2019, I think when people started raising serious money. And I think now we've, we've kind of come over that, that peak and we're heading towards the kind of either the trough or maybe the plateau of productivity. But um, <laughs> we're someplace after all that now. And I think I've seen that whole kind of swell and I've been paddling along through all of that. We at Motilin, we use AI as a means to an end. It's used mainly in our validation tools and some of the other work that we do. Yeah. We still try to cling to a lot of the old ways because A, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. I think B, when it comes to the regulatory side of things, there's no need to overcomplicate things and AI should really be a last resort if you can't find a more you know, simple way of doing it. And I think that's that's kind of how I've seen sh things shift and my outlook hasn't changed, but I think certainly the world has kind of spun around a few times. Yeah, definitely. I think um, it's a it's a comment around AI that, that's so common, um, but it was almost three, four years ago, if you had AI in your name or you had .ai, you can kind of add an extra zero from the investors um you know so everyone kind of tried to take a, a hammer to a pane of glass um when all you didn't, you didn't need that to clean the glass right you just needed a bit of polish um for it so I'm, I'm glad that you've you've kept on what what has worked um for you but when we've always spoken that hasn't always been the the biggest challenge that you guys have faced it's almost been the the educating about the clinical need and you mentioned about the education piece being really really important to you so um how's that expanded and where do you sit now on what the clinical need is for your work well i think there is our specific use case but there is the, a general framework that for me it it fits into and People that know me know that I bore them a lot with this kind of topic. But within med tech, you've got therapeutic med tech and the diagnostic and monitoring type med tech. So therapeutics like hip implants. So a lot of the AI stuff fits into the diagnostic and monitoring. And then within diagnostic monitoring, you've got me too type products that do something that we already do quicker, faster, more efficiently. So a good example is the bone age in the hand. So you can do an x-ray of the hand and you can look at the carpals and say, well, it's, you know, this, this age. And you can do that with an old lookup table or an AI can do that for you. 
And I think in that case, you've got a very kind of clear reason for doing it, a way to sell it, an audience that needs it. And I think the thing is, you know, fundamentally, it's an efficiency uh, tool. I think the other more challenging area is on the novel biomarker development, which is where a lot of people and we personally fit into, if I'm honest, like we're trying to develop a new way of looking at a chronic disease um, that is very challenging. And I think when people are developing into this space, the, the regular, I mean, we'll get into regulations and talk about that all day, yeah. but <laughs> I think the regulatory barrier isn't so much of a problem because you can't really contextualize the risk and people don't know why it, what it does or doesn't matter at, at that exact time. You might say it's got this impact, but it's not a clinical test today. And I think you can get market clearance, but then you've got to really go and convince the community why they're going to move away from their standard way of doing things, the existing uh, clinical care charts and the flow, flow diagrams that they follow. And they've got to learn a whole new way of looking at some particular disease through the context of your new marker that you've produced with your, in air quotes, AI. Mm. And I think that just really um, makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable. I think if they're busy, you can't just change one part of the care algorithm and expect the whole thing to make sense. You've got to potentially re-envisage a lot of that care algorithm. Um, and I think all of this, you know, ties into kind of what makes things very, very difficult for all of us. And you look at very established areas, like for example, cancer screening programs, um, that's been around forever. There is now about eight different companies that are all doing like mammography reads. Yeah. And you're asking them to stop doing what they've done and kind of slightly adjust the way you might um, scan mammography. And I think you can make an efficiency play on the one hand, but missing anything there is really, really yeah. bad for a lot of people. And there's a lot of um, work to be done. How do we re-envisage re a care pathway that, for example, incorporated some mammography type AI tool? And I think that bit, it's destined to happen and there's no way it won't happen. But to expect people just to shift overnight, I think has been quite disappointing for a lot of the investors in this space. And I think we, we've all made a bit of a misassessment perhaps of how long it's going to take for these no-brainer type decisions to actually fully come through and be valuable. Mm. And nowhere is this worse than what I call chronic diseases that don't kill you. Um, and I'm, we're jumping around a little bit here, but there is a, there's a thread of reason that I'm sure you'll be able to unpick, Nick, for me in a minute. But um, <laughs> if we look at very successful companies in this space, people want to know, how is it going to change outcomes and what, what's it doing for me? And I think to know that, you have to be able to measure the outcome quickly. So in stroke, for example, there's been some riotously successful and wonderful companies that have been working <laughs> on stroke triage because... Yeah. The outcomes are so close to being measured. And now I finally get to answering some of your question. We work in inflammatory bowel disease and no one really wood, dies from Crohn's disease that often. They just live a really, really horrible life. Mm. And saying, how's this change patient management? That could be five to 10 years away when after years of mismanagement, they go for surgery and have a stoma and then have it reversed. And they're way outside of your care horizon at that point. So it makes making that kind of um, very justified argument for exactly how you're going to change care management in a time frame that we recognize in most hospitals, um, excruciatingly challenging and difficult. And I think that's why, you know, there's a there's a range of different problems when you're in novel areas of chronic disease and the kind of the consequences of you mismanaging patients isn't as obvious as it needs to be to kind of force change. I think you find yourself in a very challenging position to develop a company. And you've got to really take a long view, dig in and really work hard on the education, the support and the training that goes with your tool yeah. and focus on that, that care pathway 2.0 rather than just trying to buff something that doesn't necessarily work that well today. Yeah. And you, you mentioned that like the care pathway 2.0. Do you think that 
not only do you, if you have something that's very immediate to measure, so talk about stroke or um, talk about um, emergency care if someone has a heart attack of sort of where the where the missed bump is. But with your care pathway, not only is the measurement quite far ahead, but also there's a lot of different stakeholders involved in that as well. So you haven't really got one person with one pain point, i.e. one clinician. Um, you've got a you've got to talk, educate and understand a number of different people um, across. If, if you had one patient going through the pathway, they're going to be talking to so many different people, engaging with so many different people. So I reckon that is also probably um, on layman's terms, makes it from, take it away from the clinical point of view. <laughs> I would find that damn challenging as well. No, that, that's absolutely right. So your typical. So just to give everyone some context, Crohn's disease is one half of inflammatory bowel disease. Um, this is chronic inflammation of the gut. Um, you can't cure it. I mean, you can cure ulcerative colitis, which is the other half by removing the colon completely. These patients are on anti-inflammatory drugs for most of their lives. They'll be on surgery occasionally, and they just have a very diminished quality of life. And they're, they're separate from in, um, irritable bowel syndrome, which is the more functional side of GI problems um, that don't have an, you know, a visible cause. Um, and inflammatory bowel disease affects about nearly 250,000 people here in the UK. And I think people with this disease consume two to three of the top 10 most expensive drugs used in the NHS. So it's incredibly expensive. And every single drug company has at least one asset for managing inflammation in IBD. So it's, you may not have heard of it or you might not really have heard of it, but it's, it's a massive healthcare problem. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that's just some quick background on that. Perhaps we should have gone in there sooner. But going back onto um, the point here, each patient will be managed by surgeons, nutritionists, uh, nutritionists, dietitians, of course, um, gastroenterologists, radiologists, IVD nurses, stoma nurses, you name it. So you've really got to get all of these people around a table and say, look, this is the direction of travel and we've got to go there together. And I think the reason Motilin has been, has taken quite a long time to kind of get to where we are um, today is because we've got to um, recruit a lot of these um, healthcare professionals along the way and get them yeah. seeing things from our perspective. And most of them inherently agree with it, but it's difficult to affect change in hospitals. And I, yeah. I don't expect that to be easy for anyone. Yeah, no, it's difficult to, to affect change and it's even more challenging. You can kind of put, someone should definitely do um, an equation to figure out the multiplier for how challenging it would be every time you add a different stakeholder into a clinical pathway. <laughs> I'm sure Some someone square on... law there, I think. <laughs> yeah, someone on a weekend can do that. Doesn't matter about EBITDA anymore. It's about your multiplier for investors. It's about the multiplier for, for healthcare change. That's that's the one each company should look at. Um, but but where you guys are now though, so you've kind of set out the challenges. Um, so it's not, but it's not all pessimistic. Um, there is change to be had, and you are doing some incredible stuff, and you have achieved a lot as well in that time. So. Um, you have a product and you have a platform, right? Um, and you've also got some some really good regulatory regulatory approval, both in the UK and in America. Um, to shout about as, as well. Yeah. So let's just quick. Yeah. I mean, it's good to kind of clarify this because it, it's it's evolved a lot even in the last couple of years. So if if you wanted to summarise what Motilin's doing now, it's right patient, right treatment, right time in inflammatory bowel disease. So it's about the precision care pathway in IBD and. We've expanded far beyond just doing MRI. We work a lot with ultrasound and increasingly 
um, endoscopy and capsule endoscopy to really capture the entire care pathway, to spot the early disease when it flares up to really characterize how badly the disease is doing and then watch it get better. And ideally as less invasively as we can do it and as remotely as we can do it as well. And the main tool that we have that's moving that along is our platform and the platform's called Entralytics. Um, again, playing on the enteric nervous system, which is like the, the, you the and your names. brain that runs through our gut. <laughs> you and your names. <laughs> got to come up with a name for these things. Um, need a logo as well, but we'll get around to that um, at some point. But Entralytics has got nearly 300 plus clinical users on it now. Um, radiologists, gastroenterologists, surgeons, you name it, doing lots of different projects around um, the digestive system and most of them in inflammatory bowel disease. Um, Entralytics itself is not market cleared but it's used by a number of research institutions, most of the top ones in the space, in fact, as well as increasingly pharmaceutical companies that are running their own R&D type projects on that platform. So it's really the hub for people getting to know what our tech is and us discovering what those user needs are. And then from that platform, we can take the best evidenced um, tools within that platform and start market clearing them. And the you know, the, the tool that we've got FDA cleared recently is called GIQUANT, and this has been available in Europe now for adults and kids for some time. And this measures um, the amount of Crohn's disease activity in the small intestine. So you can't get the small intestine that easily with endoscopy, especially if the person's got um, obstruction in the bowel from inflammatory bowel disease. So you will use MRI in these cases most of the time anyway. MRI is a very powerful technique, but it's quite subjective. And GeoQuant allows a radiologist or a trained clinician to extract a numerical score for how severe that disease is. The person can then go on the drugs um, to, to treat that inflammation, um, and they can come back and have that score checked up on. Now, the, the, the key different, the, the key point here, I guess, that we need to make is in America, for example, that person will have a follow-up MRI in 12 months, and we know that 60% of patients are probably going to stop having um you know, seeing the effects of those drugs at 12 months, 60%, in fact, right. um, lose, lose response. And those drugs are expensive. They cost 10, 20, $30,000 per patient year. So there's a big waste of money. And if the drugs aren't working, the disease can be getting worse. And when I say worse, I'm talking about really nasty stuff, like the bowel will start to get stuck together. You'll develop fistulae and potentially other complications that'll need you to have surgery, a stoma. And it's a really horrible thing when you're like, for example, in your young 20s, you're supposed to be at university doing something else. You don't want to get it wrong. And I think this is the problem. Now, the person's not going to die, but they're going to have a really terrible life because of it. And I think this is why I care about this area. Yeah. So what GeoQuant um, can help a radiologist do is spot that failure sooner. If the GeoQuant score is going down or staying the same, the drug is not working. And we've recently had results um, from Cincinnati Children's Hospital that show that we can spot that change in six weeks. So very, very early on. And you can either give the gastroenterologist the confidence to kind of keep pushing on or to make an important change at a key time. Now, the tech works. Our big battlefront at the moment is what's the gastro going to do with that information? And I think that our big battlefront, as I'm saying, is really getting into those gastro clinics now and supporting those clinicians make changes based on our data. And right. that's a huge leap of faith that people have to take. And I'm hugely sympathetic for anyone wrapped up in my various trials and schemes and other plans <laughs> I think, in this space. And, we're doing a lot of you know, high-level research studies that's going to be uh, very interesting to see based on working out how we can re-envisage that, that aspect of the care pathway. Um, but again, the recruitment, the trials, the, the ethics, the funding, all of this stuff takes a very long time to pull together. 
And people need yeah. to go together in lockstep and make sure they're really doing it together as opposed to one you know, yeah, yeah, part yeah. of the business getting out of its way and overhyping some aspects. Yeah. Isn't true. So is there, almost you've got the platform as a gateway, I guess you could you could imagine it as into, into your major product at the moment. Um, and, and that, uh, the GI quant is um, six six weeks. You said it was. Um, it, it can it can identify the difference when it's sometimes it can take twelve months in America. Um, I think the we can see evidence of change with our test. The numerical scores change as early as six weeks. Right in America because of reimbursement and other reasons. The MRI is not done for twelve months just because a it's very hard to read without oh, tools to assist. Um, and it's not seen as just the way of doing things. Um, in Europe, we actually scan a bit earlier. I think there's six months scanning happening at some points, and we're a bit tighter with that. But um, it fits into a bunch of different money and cultural differences, especially <laughs> because endoscopy is much preferred in the US. So they always go for endoscopy first um, instead of cross-sectional imaging. And I think this is this is extends far beyond just our technology, but this is also kind of how we go about looking at this complex disease is not sorted out just yet. And I think there's, there's still a lot of work to do. Just to sort of explore the difference between then America and, and uh, UK and Europe, because uh, we had this discussion with uh, IDENTS and sort of the difference between uh, American healthcare and UK healthcare, um, especially when going into uh, medical imaging. Um, mentioned two key differences there around um, scanning and around endoscopies so how different is it for you and do you think it's more different than other industries other sorry other care pathways for you um i think every care pathway has unique challenges that it faces i think one of the the, the biggest use um in chronic disease especially is that people are getting paid for doing certain procedures. And I think if you're upsetting the apple cart when it comes to people's reimbursement, I think it's difficult. And fundamentally, if your insurer doesn't cover an MRI at six weeks, and trust me, none of them do, I think it's very difficult to get pre-approval for that scan. And then the patient's ending up having to pay out of pocket for it. And I think that that's just not something that we are used to here in the UK. That's not how things work. Yeah. Um, but you're just introducing huge problems for the patient as well as everyone else. And <laughs> On top of that, if the clinician then doesn't know exactly what they're doing with the results of that data, then you're not really helping a lot. So you've got to kind of go in with the eyes wide open to the US and work out exactly who you're benefiting, why and when. Yeah. Now, there are some caveats around this and extraordinary, you know, extraordinary uh, clinical claims do require extraordinary clinical evidence. Um, and I think if you can put that data together and just show this 10x increase in the way that we're, we're looking at a patient group um especially the academic institutions will get behind you and start pushing it and a good example is prostate cancer i can remember 10 years ago with the promise study at ucl the thought of doing a prostate mr ahead of biopsy was like ridiculous misuse of money what are we going to do mrs for every man you know ridiculous it's not not going to happen now everyone's doing prostate MR because it is the right thing to do for the patient. You know, it's yeah. the right thing to try and locate that lesion and be much more specific with the template, you know, than the template biopsy and just go for the area of interest. And, and to this end, we've, we've really focused very hard on pediatric inflammatory bowel disease. Generally, you don't have to scope kids more than you need to, 
scoping an adult is different. The risk is low, lower, and you know a whole range of different factors um, make it a lot more doable to scope adults. Scoping children repeatedly is just not a particularly nice thing to do, nor a good idea, yeah. nor that useful, especially in that physiology. So we've we've really you know we ensured that our FDA labeling included pediatric uses, and we've we've really focused, for example, where the maximum effect size of what we're doing can be seen. Kids respond very quickly to medication, so it makes sense to have more scans. And the insurers know that if they mess it up with that kid and they have short bowel by the age of 20 and they need to go on like central feeding and all this stuff, they're looking at hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars per year to look after that patient. And they definitely don't want that to happen. <laughs> so there are certain levers that you can really kind of organize your business around to really show that impact as early and quickly as possible. I think that that's really where we've we've spent a lot of time like and thinking. And on the face of it, it's harder from a regulatory perspective. It's harder to get your studies going. But the effect is so much bigger that it's a good entry point. And I don't know if it's a particularly novel thought, but young people tend to carry their testing and their management care pathways with them through time. If they're accustomed to having an MRI, quick ultrasound, and they get capsule endoscopy in the community once a year to make sure they are in remission at the age of 14, they're going to expect that at the age of 17, and they're going to demand it at the age of 20. And I think right. if, you, if you invest in these people young, you can hopefully have them pull it up um, as they kind of go forward. I think I'm, I'm very satisfied with that approach um, currently. Yeah, definitely a long, long-term play then um, in, in what, you're, what you're looking at. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you mentioned a couple of other, you mentioned prostates, the, the difference in, in screening um, there as well. So um, looking at other sort of med tech companies and software with medical devices we mentioned stroke as well so some really cool companies in in that space won't name any names um but both two have been on this podcast series before um but where do you see the challenges now of software as medical devices when it comes to, to med tech um i think software as medical device needs to get off its high horse as something special it isn't you're just producing numbers, telemetry, or information that goes into decision-making by a clinician that's going to do something or not do something. It's no different from C-reactive protein, blood test for information, or a screening questionnaire, or anything else. And again, if you're copying something that already exists, people are going to get it. If you're coming up with an AI version of C-reactive protein, and it's and, the, and it's been verified and validated to give you the same number, you can have less issues with getting that accepted because people are going to be substituting one tool for another. Mm. I suspect most clinicians don't know if their CRP test has been swapped over in the lab somewhere. They just kind of get the number back in EPR and carry on. We have to face the reality of the fact that a lot of AI solutions, especially if they're products that output some number or some score, are destined to face a similar type of role in a care pathway. They're going to be embedded. There's going to be some math happening behind the scenes, and they're going to spit out a number that goes into a, a flow chart that if I than this, then this, else that. And really, that simplifies the problem because, you know, the regulatory system tends to sort itself out if you're seeing these tools as like a blood test or, or similar. Um, but, it, you know, the big risk is, how much you charge for these things is going to be impacted. And I think if you're making your money from just doing a single number, you will find there's a degree of attrition. It's only a matter of time to the OEMs like 
GE, Philips and Siemens in, stick it on their system and call it a day. And yeah. then it's a real race to you know, the bottom, making it as cheap as possible. And I think this is, this is the one dark path that I think is, is, is destined to be a reality. And it has already happened with calcium scoring, for example, in medical imaging. That would have been branded a fancy AI company if it was found in 2019. It happened years ago, and now it's just a feature on the GE and yeah. Philips systems. But a lot of clever entrepreneurs, um, I'd like to consider myself there, have seen that it's not enough just to output a number. You need to wrap a care pathway, re-envisage that care pathway and provide a proper solution. And you know, a lot of people say, well, is your test validated? It's like, that's not the question. It's, is the complete solution validated when it comes to outcome? You can't expect sticking one good component in a car and the whole car to be 10x better. You need to replace all the bits probably. And I yeah. think that's really what we're looking at with the future of what we're doing. Less and less companies I'm seeing now are trying to make a single tiny piece work better. They're really looking at the whole care pathway and thinking, yeah. how can we do this better? And yeah. we're doing that too. We've yeah. got the platform. It's only a matter of time until you can run that entire that entire Crohn's disease patient's care plan off of our platform with all the different tools. The AI make it slick, objective, quick, and better. But it's the system that it's all and the substrate that it's set into that's really going to be the value add because we're going to be able to prove this patient's doing better if they're on our you know, in our, in our pathway compared to the kind of the existing clinical standard, which is spread around a bunch of different hospitals, getting variable standards of care from different centers everywhere. So I think we're going to, we're going to see much of an evolution in mindset away from just doing a product into a solution. I think when yeah. we've got the solution lockdown, we're going to see transformative um, changes in healthcare and outcomes for patients yeah. in simple diseases. <laughs> Stroke's not simple, but <laughs> it's, it's in the queue and well-researched, well-funded, and well-understood part. Of it. Mm. There's, you know, diabetes is, is sort of chronic, but getting into the right place. But, you know, the future of medicine is necessarily hard. You're going to be looking at long-term cancer management where you're knocking out certain genes and trying to keep on top of it. It's being yeah. diagnosed, but then it'd be managed. You're going to be looking at other more chronic diseases like IBS, for example, where people are missing loads of work from it in GI. And a whole range of other GI problems that can be multifactorial. And the solution is going to be have to be this this a platform type approach to that disease area. And I think that's where the AI is going to be really mm. kind of pulled together and used to kind yeah, of assist yeah. with all of that. And I think that's just unbelievably exciting. And I think yeah. that's what we should all be looking to try and build or build into at least. But well, the amount of platforms that are coming available now, and we're having discussions around platforms rather than products, is is the biggest shift that I've seen really in the last um, you know eighteen to to. to to 24 months mm. um but i think just to just to maybe um fight the corner of of people who aren't looking at one whole solution right now and have a have a product and an ip around a, a product half the problem can be that a lot of people see their technology and think we could use that in our clinical pathway and we could use that in our clinical pathway so they almost kind of have way too much um too too many fingers and too many pies almost but because there's been a clinical need for all of those things based on the technology and the work that they've done so how what what would your advice be to to people who are considering or having discussions with different areas of of pathways and other pharma or biotechs coming to them and saying we could use that for that clinical trial or that r d and and such well i mean i think this is this is wonderful so an example for us is we started at looking at the small intestine getting inflamed in Crohn's disease, but 
the University of Nottingham have kicked off this entire program in cystic fibrosis, where the new drugs for CF, not CAF-TRIO, mean that people don't now die early on in life. And they live long enough for GI problems now become the main thing that people really get stuck with. And you get this, this, this compaction of mucus in the GI tract, and it shows up looking awful like uh, Crohn's disease. And they've found this whole application for our technology in that space. And what do I say to that? I don't change the business plan. I say, great, we're providing a tool here. If you can find use for it, then, then absolutely go for it. Um, I think when it comes to running a business, and this is with my CEO hat on here though, it's that that focus is A, it's very sporadic and unforeseeable. And cystic fibrosis, whilst I'm utterly delighted that we've got, you know, we can impact that area. The market's fairly small and it's very difficult to know exactly what to do with that. And it's the kind of thing you take to shareholders if you're a listed company and the share price had dipped because they didn't see the monetary value in it. And I think if you're going to opportunistically acquire new disease areas, I think it's great, but you've got to be thinking of the narrative, like how does this fit into the kind of the North Star of your company? And if you're making a vertical business like ours, where is this helping someone with a gut yeah. problem? It makes it easy to say yes and no to these applications, you fold it in. And if you're doing a horizontal business, like a, an app store for different AIs, I think, you know, similarly, it's, it's quite easy to kind of see where that fits in. But you've got to make sure that you're putting the right type of tools in and not going vertical when you should be going horizontal or vice mm. versa. And I think that's probably how I'd contextualize it. But it's a really case by case type problem. Yeah. Um, and wherever you find someone that's desperate to use your tool for something new, I think it's always best to kind of let them get on with it. Say that's not the, you know, make sure you comply with your information for users and regulatory um, requirements. But yeah. everything that we have in medicine these days has come from people messing about with stuff in the first place and seeing what happened. And, and yeah. that's how medicine has come to be. And I'm, I'm a massive supporter of that continuing. Oh, for sure. And as an entrepreneur then, um, within, within medtech and what's, I guess, the negativity of what is out there to come, right? In the, we're getting feedback from investors and, and VCs and, and such and the macroeconomics um, that we're facing in the world right now. Um, as we're kind of facing cost of living crisis, the COVID pinch, supply chain issues, semiconductor issues across the world. What does a founder need to focus on? <laughs> well, on the, on the plus side with crypto going down, at least GPUs are now quite cheap. So <laughs> silver linings uh, and all of that. Um, for me, innovation in medical and especially med tech, and going back to my, especially the diagnostic and monitoring med tech, where so much of your value comes from real world usage. This is actually quite a fantastic time and an opportunity to really think about what you're doing, realize you know, the markets, you know, we're in July at the moment, um, the markets are going down, we're probably going to recession. I mean, that being said, I'm sure America will just start printing more money and we'll be in a, <laughs> another massive boom time for inexplicable reasons, but uh, I, I digress. There's an election coming, so they probably will do. <laughs> yeah, let's get the printer back on, shall we? Um, I think when you're making this kind of fiddly type of technology, you don't really need massive pots of cash. Massive pots of cash allows you to hire very expensive people and to kind of try and push delicate clinical decisions with money. And I don't think that necessarily kind of gets you there quicker i think it can accelerate some things but if i was starting out what i'm doing now i think with a relatively quiet market there is still a lot of cash there to be raised as long as you can you know take a bit of a hit on on the valuation um and not try to compare yourself to how you were in 2019 and then think about it from an investor's point of view 
you can't really put this money elsewhere. The interest rates are still low. It's very difficult to put it in the market. So there's, there's cash and there's dry power that's sitting around. So the question is, well, how do we get hold of it? And when you've, you've done a fairly more modest round than you might have done three years ago, there is a whole bunch of trials and world, real world type work that you can start putting together with a very modest budget to prove how this test might be working. You can speak to more clinicians um, and you can really kind of take your time, I think, to realize a high quality, you know, fit of what you're doing. People talk about product market fit in medical and clinical, that is completely wrong. There is product market reluctant acceptance, which is where clinicians grudgingly start using your tool because everyone else is doing it. And I think this is, you know, a down market, I suspect, is actually quite a good time to have those slower conversations and not be pressured by this spectre of having to deploy 20 million and there being this competition from everyone else. I think this is actually quite a good thing for medical, especially knowing now what we know about how to regulate and how to push yeah. these these things through so i think it's actually a glorious time i'm quite happy to um be solvent at this particular time to touch wood yeah. for the moment at least um, and I, I expect to see a lot of really good high quality med tech um, coming out of the next few years and i'm very keen to help other people um along the way if i can well there's um you mentioned regulatory and how much more improved we are and we've not even touched on that I and mean, we're coming to the end now but i just want to say thank you because it's been insightful it's, it's raced apart along this this episode and um you you have some 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 interesting topics that's always a, a point of chat and whenever we have a call it's normally two minutes but it lasts about half an hour um because we do try and put the world to rights sometimes mostly mostly most of the content is driven by you to be fair because i don't really bring much to the party um but <laughs> you are you are on a you're on a mission and it, it's it's one that is 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 getting through um absolutely and the success that you guys have had and I guess the organic success and the right type of success that you've had um, is, is a testament to, to the business that you've created um, and should be an exciting 12, 18, 24 months for you guys um, coming up, right? No, I think so. We are currently hiring quite extensively, which is interesting. And it's great to see so much, you know, wonderful people on the market um, looking for interesting work. Um, I've worked hard to create a staple ship. And I think I've resisted going out and raising cash, for example, before we really need to do it. And I think this is something that I'm actively looking at now, just because it turns out you can't bootstrap an American um, market access team um, completely out of your own. <laughs> so there, there is, there is very different. But it's They're quite things. expensive. <laughs> yeah, it turns out they are. I think what's going on in America. It's probably that, that money printer. But um, we've spent a long time kind of positioning to where we are now. And I think we're set for quite a healthy amount of growth. And I think there's there's quite a lot to come and learn from us. So I think if anyone's interested and has listened to this podcast and wants to chat as an entrepreneur, wants mm. to kind of follow up on this as an investor, not necessarily to invest in us, although you might want to, but just to kind of triage some of the information out there, I'm always happy to kind of talk. Mm. And I think if you're a clinician or someone that is thinking about sidestepping out of just doing the clinical work, um, I've been stunned by how many people come to me from clinical backgrounds and just don't know what the jobs are in this space. And I've had a few conversations like that in the house. So I could sell it out to anyone that's, that's <laughs> curious, um, but it's, it, it should be fun. And I, I'm generally known for being a bit cynical, but it's tongue in cheek cynicism because I think yeah. medicine is rightfully hard. And if it wasn't hard, a lot of people would be dead. So I'm kind of glad that it's that way. Um, and it's something we should kind of revel in and joke about together. I think yeah. when things seem a bit unfair and I'm always kind of keen for that and I don't yeah. want to gloss it for anyone but um exciting times ahead and I really appreciate having, having the time to have a bit of a chat no and I hope that the audience can extract some value from this otherwise slightly chaotic no um, worries but I think the quote the quote of the episode was there if it wasn't hard there'll be a lot of people dead um <laughs> medicine in a, in a phrase um thank you very much for coming on Alex it's been an absolute pleasure um thank you for listening guys as well
Thank you. Thank you for listening to the episode of LifeSite AI, the podcast series. If you would like to go back and listen to any of series three, please do so on the best playlist for you to uh, get that from. If you would like to listen to the rest of series one and series two, please visit cyproglobal.com. Thank you.